We're going to be in Luke chapter 14, uh, and so you can make your way there. Um, and uh, I'm going to jump right in and introduce what we're going to be reading to you this way. Um, years ago, we uh, went on a cruise, my wife and I, and really a hundred of our closest friends. We had a, a marriage retreat, and uh, we did it on a cruise to Cabo San Lucas. So we, and we'll do it again, by the way. I think this is something that we should offer here in the, in the coming months. So maybe we can set something up either for 2019 or 2020. But, um, but it was a marriage cruise. It was uh, four days, went out, uh, down to Cabo, and, um, and the cruise line made a, uh, a room available for us uh, at the back of the ship. Um, where we could uh, have our, our sessions. And so we would have worship and uh, the teaching of God's word and, and just a great time. But it's on the ship, and if you've ever taken a cruise, you know that pretty much anything that's going on anywhere is open to everybody on the ship, which is fine. We're preaching the gospel. But we're there, and we're having a worship time in, in, uh, in the room. And, uh, you know, it's one of, the, one of the ballrooms that they have there in the, in, in the, the ship. And I'm standing towards the back, and as we're worshiping the Lord, all of a sudden, I feel this, this, uh, this woman's arm go around my waist and kind of, you know, suggestively just sort of snuggling up next to me, and it's not my wife. <laughs> and Brenda's there, she's in close proximity, and I look over, and there's this drunk gal who has wandered in to, and you're going to know she's drunk in a minute because she starts hitting on me, you know, and you got to be drunk to hit on me. So, um, thanks mom. Um, so, so, uh, so she, here she is and she, and she asks me what's going on. Hey, well, you know, kind of what's the, what's the party kind of thing? What's happening here? And I said, well, uh, we're, we're Christians and we're worshiping the Lord. You know, <laughs> she was drunk, but she wasn't that drunk, you know. And so uh, I said, Brenda, she just, his, she, she finds humor in everything. She's laughing about the whole thing here. I, I told her, hey, you're welcome to stay with us, but she wanted nothing to do with it. But the experience kind of illustrates a point that we're going to see in our text today. That you can have a gathering of people, and sometimes, you know, a gathering of people, a crowd draws a larger crowd. You know, it, it's kind of like, you know, you're driving down the freeway, and all there's a few vehicles pulled over, and they're, they're kind of congregating together because something happened, and all of a sudden, everybody slows down, wants to be a part of what's going on over here. Crowds can draw a larger crowd, and when it draws a larger crowd, the people that are involved, they're not necessarily all seeking the same thing. This gal was looking for a party. She was looking for a good time. She was looking for, you know, a middle-aged man, apparently. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so here in our text today, we're, as we get into it, we're going to see that, that there's these people, they're, they're, they're this crowd that's now following Jesus, but they're not all there for the same thing. Let's jump in where we left off. Luke chapter 14, verse 25, it says, Now great multitudes went with him. Went, they went with Jesus. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. 
Tough saying. This is one of those tough sayings of Jesus. This is one of those areas of Scripture where you're just like, wow, how do we we deal with that? There's two words that are key to understanding what Jesus says here in verse 26. And those two words are disciple and the word hate. Now, let's break this down. Let's look at the word disciple, first of all. Um, Last week, if you were with us, Jesus told a parable. And the parable that he told was was basically this big idea that coming to God is like accepting an invitation. The way it worked in Jesus' day and in this parable that he told, there was a guy who's throwing a big dinner and he wants to invite people to it. And so it starts with the formal invitation that goes out. And those that would accept this invitation, then they would get a follow-up invitation from a servant who would then go out once the meal was all prepared. So the first invitation was, hey, the, 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 the one who's having the meal wants to know who's coming, wants to prepare for it. And now when it's prepared, he would send out his servant. And his servant would then go to all the invited guests and say, all right, it's time to eat. And so Jesus, in the telling of the parable, he says, as, Jesus, as the servant goes out, that those that had, had committed, that had responded to the formal invitation, they, they said, uh, you know, oh, well, now I, I, you know, I can't come. And they all gave a series of lame excuses for why, even though they had been invited, they couldn't come and couldn't uh, participate. And basically what we see is that Jesus said uh, the, that once this man was met with this rejection, that what, what then transpired was he said to his servant, go out and invite the poor, invite the lame, invite everybody who's on the margins of society, all of the outcasts, go out and invite them. And, uh, and this was a picture we saw of this invitation that had gone out to the nation of Israel. And they, through the prophets, had received God's invitation. They were God's chosen people, uh, having received his commandments and all. But when Jesus was sent, they rejected him. And so God the Father, in his love, reached out and turned to the Gentiles and invited them to come into a saving faith in him. But here now, what Jesus is emphasizing to this now this crowd that's following him, he's saying, look, there's more to being his follower than merely just accepting an invitation. That's the idea. What he's saying is there has to be a total and a complete surrender. And all of this, the key word to this is identified there in verse 26. It's the word disciple. Now, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. A disciple is literally one who follows and one who learns. A disciple is a follower and a learner. And it's understood in this relationship in that we are called to be followers and learners that the discipleship relationship has a line of clear authority. And that line of authority doesn't start with you. In order for you to be a disciple, it's not as though uh, your part of the equation is that you're in charge, but rather that Jesus is in charge. This is what Jesus is saying, that there's this line of authority and that we are called to follow him, to learn from him, and to worship him. In other words, I'm not the boss. Jesus is the boss. And Jesus said this in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 10. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher. He says, nor is a servant above his master. And so as Christians, we are called into this type of a relationship where we follow Jesus and we learn from him and that we completely, in the equation, submit to his will in our lives. 
Well, here, this crowd that is now following Jesus, many of them have not received that memo. They are in this place where they're following Jesus, but just like their religious leaders, their focus, as we're going to see as we get into it, is really self-serving. It's really a man-centered focus. Why? Well, because they thought that Jesus was the Messiah, and their version, their vision, their expectation of the Messiah who would come would be that the Messiah would overthrow the Roman rule that they were subjected to, and they despised the Roman rule. But it never occurred to them that the Messiah wasn't coming to be a solution to their circumstance. The Messiah was coming to be a solution to their sin. And so Jesus did not come to overthrow Rome, much to their, their, the chagrin of their expectations. That wasn't why he came. He came to overthrow the satanic rule that was in their own hearts. And many today, they still see Jesus as a solution to their circumstances and not a savior to set them free from their bondage to sin. And so, so this is a, a big deal. And so Jesus, he's not interested in gathering a crowd on the crowd's terms. It's not about the numbers to him. It's about the souls of those who are going to come to him. And so he gets straight to the point, and he employs here what's known as a Semitic hyperbole. And that's all in, in, it wrapped up in this word hate, this word hate. It's a Semitic hyperbole, and that's a fancy way of saying that it's an exaggeration to make a point. That's what Jesus is doing when he says you got to hate your brother, you got to hate your mother, you got to hate your child, you got to hate. It's, it's an exaggeration to make a point. Uh, and the point is, hey, you have to love God to such a degree that every other relationship pales in comparison. That's the idea. And so Jesus is not saying that in order to follow him, you have to literally hate everybody else. That would conflict with the rest of the gospel because the Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. Jesus said, by this all will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. The Apostle John said this. He said, if anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, does, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So Jesus isn't literally saying you've got to hate your, your brother. You've got to hate everybody else. And then you have to love God. He's saying, no, comparatively speaking, your love for Jesus and your relationship with him must be so complete. It must be so wholehearted that every other relationship, your, your family, your friends, even your own life, pales in comparison. This is the idea here that Jesus is, is conveying. And here's why. God, in, in his word makes it abundantly clear, particularly in the Ten Commandments that he gives, the very first two commandments have to do with your love for God. Actually, the first four have to do with your love for God. But the first two, first one, Deuteronomy 5, 7, you shall have no other gods before me. Second one, Deuteronomy 5, 8, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. You see, the problem, though, is that as Martin Luther put it, the human heart is an idol factory. Webster's Dictionary defines an idol this way. It says that an idol is an image of a god used as an object of worship. And stereotypical image that we have when we think about idols are the actual carved image of some sort of god. Think, you know, Brady Bunch and their trip to Hawaii, right? 
They go into the cave there, and they find this little idol that's been carved. And, and that's, that, that might be the case, but usually, more often, what is the case with an idol? Hey, an idol is anything that occupies the throne of our hearts. And the Lord knows that there are different idols that we can have. And that's why he says to this crowd following him, look, you know, you, you, your family can't be an idol. Your kids can't be an idol. Your, your relationships can't be an idol. I got I to gotta take first place on the throne of your heart. And that gives us a, a, a glimpse into a very real issue where idols are concerned. Idols can actually be good things. It's been said that an idol is when a good thing becomes a God thing. And we elevate that to a God thing in our hearts. I like what David Guzik said. He said, the greatest danger of idolatry comes not from what is bad, but from what is good. He says, such as love in family relationships. He says, the greatest threat to the best often comes from second best. And so our children can, can, be, can become an idol. Our mother and father can become an idol. Our spouse, our girlfriend, our boyfriend, whatever. These relationships, they can become idols to us if they become first in our lives. And let me give you an example of how this works. And I'm going to step on some toes here. Um, and uh, some of y'all are going to be angry with me by the time we're done here, no doubt. Because when you start tinkering with people's idols, it gets a little personal. But I see this with parents and their children where our children become an idol in our life. And, you know, what happens then is they're King Farouk, and everything revolves around them, and there's no sacrifice too small for them. If they're in sports, watch it, Pastor Ted. If they're in sports, they'll sacrifice days, they'll sacrifice evenings, they'll sacrifice weekends, they'll drive 100 miles to take them to their sporting events, but they won't drive five minutes to take them to church. And there's this issue, what happens when the sports conflict with Sunday morning church service? I'll tell you what I see more often than not, sports went out. Why is that? Because the idol just won. The idol just won. Let me say it clearly. Let me say it unambiguously for you. Your child's extracurricular activities should never have priority over your worship of God, ever. And it should not have priority over their worship of God. And I'll just throw this out. It's not in my notes, but a lot of times what we do is we say, oh, it's just a season. Show me in the Bible where it's just a season where, you know, you can just, oh, it's just a season. We're just going to go through soccer. It's just a season. We're not, you know. You're teaching your child that there are other things that are more important than God. And you can call me a legalist or not, but Jesus never says in his word, I come first unless your kids really, really, really love soccer. (laughs) He doesn't say it. And the same is true for every other relationship, including your own life. We have a tendency, we'll sacrifice anything for our, for our hobbies, for our expectations, for those things that, that are really, really important to us. There are certain things, certain litmus tests that we can employ to identify the idols in our lives. One of the things is our Franklin planners or our, you know, just our calendars. Like, what do you give your time to? One of the things is, is your checkbook. What do, you give you, what do you give your treasure to? Right? Uh, another thing is, is what you do with, with the gifts and talents that you have. What do you give your talents to? See, these things are all litmus tests to show us, is Jesus first or is he not? 
Jesus continues, verse 27. He says, And whoever does not bear his cross and come, af- come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we're Christians in the, in the 21st century. We understand the cross. We know that Jesus died on a cross. But listen, his audience here, they know it better than, than anybody knows it. Because they're living under Roman occupation. And the Romans, they crucified people every day, practically. Like there was an incident that happened probably 30 years prior to the, to the timing of the story that we're reading right now where there was a Roman general by the name of Varus and he crucified 2,000 Jews on one day. And what he did was when they would crucify you, they'd crucify you at the side of the road, usually at a crossroad. So everybody coming into town, everybody leaving town, everybody doing business, they would all see, don't mess with Rome. Don't, don't, don't break our laws. Don't try and subvert our authority. And so one day, this general crucified 2,000 people lined up all, all the way down the road to Galilee. to show everybody, don't mess with us. See, in the Roman world, before you died on a cross, you first have to carry it to your place of execution. In other words, they didn't just hang you on the cross. They first hung the cross on you. Then you walk to your execution place. Then they hung you on the cross. We know that from Jesus. He bore his cross. He carried his cross to the place of execution. Walked down the, the, the Via De La Rosa, the way of suffering, to Calvary where he gave his life as a ransom for many. And so when you, when you took the cross, when you bore the cross, everybody knew it, that you were beginning a journey of suffering to your ultimate death. Nobody ever took up a cross for fun. Right? Never happened. Was it, they didn't go shopping for a cross. Right? There wasn't a consumer mindset to say, you know, gosh, where, where am I going to go? You know, kind of thing. Like Christians today might go, oh, I want to go to this church. I want to go to that church. I want to go to this church. And Jesus is saying, it's not about all the accoutrements that you get from being a Christian. It's about a way of suffering. It's about dying to yourself. This is what Jesus is saying here. Because nobody, once you picked up your cross, nobody ever came back. That was a one-way journey. And so Jesus, he's making that abundantly clear. And his exhortation here to bear the cross after him is significant for two reasons. The first reason has this contextual significance. In context, for the people of this day, when Jesus is telling them to bear their cross, it's striking at the misconception that they have in their hearts, and that was that the Messiah was going to overthrow Rome. He's dealing with that. He's saying, I'm going to a cross. I'm not going to overthrow Rome. You know, and, and this would have been unpopular because they all expected that the Messiah was going to overthrow Rome and reestablish their earthly reign and, and all. And so they saw Rome as the enemy, but the enemy wasn't Rome. It was Satan who'd taken men and women captive to do his will. That was the enemy that Jesus was going to take care of. William Barclay in his commentary, he said, when Jesus said that he was on the road to Jerusalem, he knew that he was on the way to the cross, but the crowds who were with him thought that he was on his way to an empire. And so they're following him, basically going, well, gosh, anybody who can heal people and raise people from the dead can certainly take care of Rome. And so that's why a lot of these people were on the bandwagon here. This, by the way, is the same reason when we, when we look at Peter rebuking Jesus. Remember that story? Jesus starts telling him about the cross, and Peter rebukes him. Lord, that's not going to be the case. Why? Because he, too, had the expectation that that the Messiah was going to overthrow Rome. And Jesus had to rebuke Peter. Hey, get behind me, 
Satan. Because you're not mindful of the things of God. You're mindful of the things of men. That's the problem here. They're mindful of the things of men. Their motive is all wrong. The second significance of this, Jesus' exhortation to bear the cross after him, has a contemporary significance. And that means that, that for us today, there is a significance of this statement that Jesus makes. You see, just as the multitudes followed Jesus as the answer to their circumstances, the same is true today. That there's many people who come to church, maybe you might be in this, this group yourself, that, that you come to church not seeking the one who delivers from sin, but you're seeking the one who delivers the goods. And, you know, the attitude is, wow, Jesus, I could use a handy guy like you to have around. You, you, you can give me a little more peace, you can give me some provision, you can give me power, you can give me pardon for my sin. That's a great, yeah, I'll take that. And, and while it's true that all of these things do come from a relationship with God, having a saving faith in Jesus Christ does give us peace, it does give us provision, it does give us pardon for our sin, it, it does give us power because the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, but it's never supposed to be motivated by a self-centered, hey, living for my empire kind of thing. And a lot of times we will get that backwards where we, be, we are the master and, and Jesus becomes the genie in the bottle who, who promises to, to take care of all of these things for us. And so here in the 21st century, this is an ever-increasing problem. And we have to realize this is an ever-increasing reality where people relate to Jesus that way. And Jesus didn't want the crowd here to relate to him that way. And he doesn't want you and me to relate to him in that way either. There was a study that was done in a book by uh, a couple of sociologists, uh, Christian Smith, Melinda Denton. The book was called Soul Searching. If you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me talk about it. And basically, they interviewed a grip of, of teenagers at the turn of the 21st century. All of these teenagers are now, you know, really in their 30s and make up the bulk of the American church, quite frankly, which is scary because it was, hey, what's your belief system? They called themselves Christian. Okay, what's your belief system? And what they came up with was the five top traits that, that really today the majority of Christians carry as their internal belief system. And they turned this belief system moralistic therapeutic deism. Let me, let me share with you the five basic belief points that, that is held by the majority of people who call themselves Christians in the United States, scary stuff. First two are okay. They're biblical. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Check. That's biblical. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Check. That's biblical. Number three, and this is where we go off the rails, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. That is a big not check. That's not biblical. Really, the central goal of life is, is that God should be happy and that we should die to ourselves. That's biblical, but not this. The fourth tenet is that God doesn't need to be involved in our life except when he's needed to fix a problem. I'll be in charge and I'll call you when I need you to come be my genie in the bottle. That's really what that, what that belief is you know, is anchored in. And the fifth one is that good people go to heaven when they die. Unbiblical. 
There is no such thing as good people. You are all sinners by nature and by choice. I'm great, but you got, no, we're all sinners by nature and by choice. We need a savior. You know, you don't go to heaven when you die because you're a good person. You go to heaven when you die if you surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you confess, I am a blow it, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. I need to be made a new creation in Christ. And the Bible promises that Jesus will do that when we surrender our lives to him. That's the key word, surrender. This is the idea here. And the authors, they summarize this belief system this way. Listen to this quote. God is selectively available for taking care of our needs. He's something like a combination between a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise in our lives. He helps people to feel better about themselves. And here's the key. He does not become too personally involved in the process. End quote. That's the central belief system that is scary as Hades. I'll just tell you that. We can't have that belief system. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, I don't care in a full church. I don't care about that. I don't care if the church is full twice on Sunday, add a Saturday night service, add another service on Sunday. I don't care about the numbers. I care about whether or not you're living a surrendered life to me or not. Whether you have actually confessed that you're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. This is what he's talking about. William Barclay, in his commentary on our text here, he says this. He says, it's possible to be a follower of Jesus without being a disciple, to be a camp follower without being a soldier. And this is what many in the crowd that are following Jesus are guilty of. They're followers, but they're not disciples. Let me ask you a question. Which one are you? Which one are you? Are you a follower or are you a disciple? Is Jesus your master or is he your, com- your, your, your cosmic butler? We need to take a walk with that and say, how, practically speaking, am I living my life? So Jesus now continues, and he gives these two examples to the people, starting in verse 28. He says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, second example, what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and he asks conditions of peace. Jesus says, So likewise... Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so Jesus says here basically that the work of his kingdom is like building and it's like a battle. And what he says is that, look, understand each one of those things always costs more than you think it costs in the beginning. Each, you know, building always costs more than you think at the beginning. Pastor Scott Losey, in charge of our building project, can I get an amen? It always costs more than you think at the beginning. And he says, and a battle always costs more than than you plan. And here's Jesus' point. His point is that following Jesus, it's going to cost you. 
It's going to cost you. It's not like playing a country western song backwards where you get your truck back and your car back and your wife back and your dog back and everything works out hunky-dory and peachy. People will present the gospel that way. They'll say, hey, come to Jesus and everything will be good in your life. That's not the truth. How many of you discovered that 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 actually is not the truth? Can I see an honest show of hands? Sometimes when you come to Jesus, it gets harder. Now, here's the thing. What Jesus isn't saying is that, it's, is that you got to pay the price. It's going to cost you to earn your salvation. We've been through that over and over again. Your salvation is a free gift from God. You don't earn it. Jesus purchased your salvation on the cross. What is required of you is that you confess that you're a sinner and you confess that Jesus is the Savior and you say, God, save me. And, and that's all. You know, it costs you nothing. It costs God the Father everything. But what Jesus is talking about here is not about salvation. He's talking about sanctification, which is a $12 Christian word, which basically means growing as a Christian. And he says, if you have an honest relationship with God, it's going to cost you. Because what's going to happen is that God is going to call you to live according to his word. And that means dying to yourself, his example of the cross, having preceded this. And dying to yourself doesn't come easy. So living for Christ, it's going to cost you family. It's going to cost you friends. Sometimes it'll cost you fortune. Brenda and I, we knew a couple that uh, the, the father had given them $30,000 in cash. Gave it to him in a paper sack. He said, I, I am, you know, stacks $100 bills. Said, uh, I'm, you know, about to check out. And I want you to have this. I don't want anybody to know that, that you have it. And so here you go. So they took the $30,000 cash. That's a good day, right? So they took the $30,000 in cash and they stuck it in their safe. And that night they went to bed. And before they fell asleep, as they were lying in their bed, the Lord independently spoke to each one of them. And the wife says, I don't know that I have a peace about accepting this money. And the husband says, funny you should mention that because I don't have a piece either. As a matter of fact, God gave me a verse. And he opens his Bible and he shares from God's word and says, this is how God's spoken to me. And they made the decision on the spot. God told us, no, we can't accept this. We can't take this. This, 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 is, this is dishonest gain. It's not, it's not legal what we're doing. Um, God's not going to honor what we're doing. Let me ask you a question. What if you had $30,000 in cash? Nobody knew about it, sitting in your safe, and God told you no. Would you be willing to, to obey God and, and let that cost you in this way? This couple said, we can't. The next day, they brought the bag of money back to the father. They said, we can't take this because God said no. See, they had a choice in that moment. Is it going to be God's kingdom or is it going to be my empire? See, Proverbs 14.12 says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well, right? The things that we worry about. And and I want you to know, just take note of it, the heart of what Jesus is saying. Look again in verse 33. He says, so likewise, he's summing up all the examples he's given. He says, likewise, Whoever of you does not, here's the key phrase, does not forsake all that he has 
He says he cannot be my disciple. And you might want to circle that phrase, forsake all that he has. Let me tell you literally what it means. You could write it in the margin of your Bibles. It means say goodbye to it. That's what it means in the Greek. Jesus says you got to say goodbye to it. In other words, you got to say goodbye to everything that you maybe want to hold on to, just every aspect of your life, you got to say goodbye to it. That means you hold it in an open hand and you say, Lord, I surrender it all to you. And if you put your finger on it and say, I want that, you're Lord and I'm not. This is the relationship that Jesus is calling us to live. I like what Diedrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. So Jesus now, he concludes his address, verse 34, he says this, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor... How shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What is Jesus saying here as he sums everything up? Salt in those days, understand it was used as a preservative. They didn't have vacuum sealing. They didn't have refrigeration. So if you had, you know, if you butchered, you know, a cow and you had meat, well, you could eat it right away, but if it sat around for, for you know, a period of hours, it would go bad. And, and so what did they do? They would salt it. And the salt, as it came in contact with the, with the beef, it would kill all the surface bacteria. And then it had an ongoing preserving effect. And what Jesus is saying here to his disciples is, look, you're the preserving influence in the world. You, you, you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. And, and the church it was birthed 2,000 years ago. And we are to live a, a life in obedience to the Lord, seeking Him. And He says, you're the preserving influence here. That's the idea. But if you don't operate as true disciples, then you're no use as a follower of Jesus. This is what He's saying. There has to be a difference in you. Just as salt is only useful when it has the nature of salt, he's saying that Christians are only useful when we have the nature of Christ. That's what he's saying. It all comes down to this. Are you his disciple or not? Why are you here? Why are you part of the crowd that follows Jesus? We have to take a walk with that. We need to take every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And we need to say, am I here treating Jesus as the genie in the bottle, or am I here as a surrendered slave to my master, saying my life belongs to you, and I'm going to count the cost, and I'm going to be willing to pick up my cross and follow after you? That's the question. Now, there's a lot of application that I could say in regards to that. I want to limit to two questions. I'll put them on the screen for you. <clears throat> Ask you maybe to write them down, take a prayerful walk with them this week. Number one, what have you been unwilling to say goodbye to? In your life. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a sinful habit. Maybe it's a selfish indulgence. What is it? Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. What is it that you've been unwilling to say goodbye to? Secondly, what have you been unwilling to do? What have you been unwilling to do? Because Jesus is talking about coming to Jesus on his terms, not on your terms. Right? And, and so 
what have you been unwilling to do? It's about receiving and it's about responding. I got an email this week from a guy, beautiful email. I love these kind of emails when I get them. Told me that, that he came to our church a while back, several, several years ago. Um, I, was, I was teaching out of Matthew's gospel at the time. And, uh, and I was teaching on forgiveness. He was estranged from his brother. And he shared with me how um, he left convicted because, you know, he and his brother are believers, but they'd had a falling out, and, and he hadn't reconciled with him. And, and he knew, you know, in this, this issue, what have you been unwilling to do? He knew he'd been unwilling to do what God wanted him to do, and that was to extend forgiveness to his brother. And so, so having left the service, he wrote a letter to his brother, and within two weeks, his brother wrote back, beautiful restoration, just everything that Jesus wants for us, that there's forgiveness, that there's reconciliation. Well, he just recently found out that his, his brother got the news that he's dying of cancer and, and basically shared with me, I'm so grateful for the time that I've had with my brother and that now having received this news and now having go through this trial, and, and it's clear the prognosis is his brother's not going to make it through this cancer. He said, I'm so grateful that our, we have the relationship that we've enjoyed and that we get to go through this together. And what, what, what he was talking about, he was really talking about being willing to do what God had called him to do. What is it that you've been unwilling to do? Now, I want to close with, as Kyle terms it, a, a shameless plug. And I want you to hear it. I may come across, you may think that this is, this is totally opportunistic on my part and self-serving. Um, and, uh, and I, I don't really care if that's how I come across. <laughs> because here's the thing. I want to tell you, what God's doing here at Reliance Church is a work of the Holy Spirit. We are seeing people give their lives to Jesus Christ. We are seeing people have a radical transformation, being snatched from darkness to light, from death to life. Last week, we saw nine kids in Awana give their lives to Jesus Christ. We saw another four in our children's ministry give their lives to Jesus Christ. We're watching God do amazing things. But I got to tell you, we, we, are, we are really hurting for those people that are willing to minister to God's kids in particular. And listen, what happens here at this church and the things that are going on is a work of the Holy Spirit through willing vessels. That's the way God has set it up. He's, he's, he's just set up the church that way. I can't tell you why. It's just what he's done. The Bible is replete with, with instruction, especially the New Testament, about how God has structured his church. And he makes it clear that he places every person in a church just the way that he please, it pleases him to do, and that he's placed all of you here with specific gifts and abilities, and the question is, what are you willing to do? What are you willing to do? Because coming to Jesus Christ isn't just about, oh, I got saved, and now I'm set, and now you just live as a consumer. We are called to be contributors in the body of Christ. We just are. That's the way it is. And you can come here and not do anything, but I just want you to hear from your pastor. That's That's sinful attitude on your part. And so the, th- the fact of the matter is, is that we should all have the attitude that says, here I am, Lord, send me. 
use me. And if that comes across as, as you know, you leave here going, oh, you know, PT's, you know, using the scriptures towards his own ends. I'll just tell you, the church is not mine. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. What I'm asking you to do is what God has asked us to do in his word. Just to be faithful members of the body of Christ and use our gifts to love one another and to nurture one another. And right now, God needs us to care for his kids. I just tell you, that's, that's a need. I'm not calling you to be an indentured servant and be in there for all three services and come back for Awana and all of that. I'm not asking you to do what you can't. I'm asking you to do what you can. 